Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. In a very recent episode of the Malted Muse podcast, an episode entitled Taking the Pisco, I talked about Pisco. Well, actually, it's not so much I talked about it. I talked to somebody else who knew a lot about it, Miguel Solari. Now, since that episode, Miguel has very kindly agreed to give me the recipes for both the Pisco Punch that she talked about and the Pisco Sour. Now, for the Pisco Punch, he said that the original Pisco Punch is a mystery, but here is a simple recipe for the cocktail version. You take two ounces of Pisco, two ounces of pineapple juice, one ounce of lime juice, and one ounce of simple syrup. Shake well with ice, strain, serve, garnish with a cherry and pineapple chunk. And now for that Pisco Sour, you take two ounces of Pisco, one ounce of lime, one ounce of sugar, one egg white and Angostura bitters. You mix the Pisco, the lime, the sugar and the egg whites into a shaker and perform a 15 second dry shake. Then add ice and perform another 15 seconds shake, this time a wet shake. Straining into a cocktail glass, there should be a nice foam on top. And you drop three drops of Angostura bitters into the middle of the foam. You serve it, you enjoy. Now those recipes are on my website www.themaltedmuse.com Just go onto the home page and then on the left hand side underneath the angry rant there is Pisco Sour and Pisco Punch. Just follow that link through for those recipes. And Miguel, thank you very much. I've had a moment of rather strange synchronicity recently. There I was, sat at home, thinking about whiskey and thinking about a specific aspect of it. The aspect of classification. The way that whiskies are grouped together. And whilst I was thinking about how that is done and why we do it, I received a message via Twitter from a listener, Dan Kreb. Now, Dan had a question for me about Macallan. He wanted to know why the label on his bottle of Macallan said Highland, and yet he knew that it is classified as a Speyside. Well, the simple answer to that is that it's both, because Speyside is a sub-region of the Highlands. Macallan is both a Speyside and a Highland, just as I'm a member of England and also of the United Kingdom. Classification is something that seems to be important to the human race. If things can't be classified by natural things, like dry things and wet things, or animals and plants, then we invent ways to do it, such as using alphabetical orders, or some other form of framework. Now one of the reasons we do this is to try and make sense of the world, and by doing so, to control it or manage it. And this is much easier when the world is in order. Classification 
enables us to sort out the vast numbers of options available to us and whiskey is no exception. Now let's take a look at, at such a process. I'm sat at home and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I want something, but what sort of something? Something to consume, a fluid, not hot, not a large amount, a spirit. What sort of spirit? A whiskey. Okay, what sort of whiskey? A Scottish whiskey. What sort of Scottish whiskey? A Highland whiskey. What sort of Highland? A Speyside. What sort of Speyside? Well, a 12 year old. And a car strength whiskey. And then I can carry on putting in these different ways of thinking about whiskey until I can identify the exact whiskey that it is that I want. But it, it doesn't have to be that way. The classification could be different, and often it is different. Sometimes it can go, I want a whiskey, but I want a sweet whiskey, or a smoky whiskey. The classifications I employ change the way that I approach my choice. The former method was very geographical. It was based on a historical foundation that regional whiskies had certain characters. I want a certain experience. I go to the places likely to provide those experiences. If I want peatiness, I will look to an isla. But that is problematic. I am shutting out peaty whiskies in the Highlands, in England, in Ireland, in India even. Geographical classification stands out as the main way of ordering whiskey. As Dan's question illustrates, a Macallan is not classified on the label by its still size or its barley variety, but by its postcode. So how did these geographical zones develop? Now, if you travel to Scotland and look at the ground, you'll find there's no sudden change of grass colour as you cross from one region to another. So how do they become important? To understand this, it might help to consider why whisky was once being made. Long ago, whisky was being made from local grown crops by local people with small stills for local consumers. It was a product suited to local living and local tastes. It was not a taste shared by all. The English preferred port or brandy. They did not appreciate the Scottish whisky and were not in favour with the Irish either come to think of it. The English influence on the southern parts of Scotland were noticeable. The lowlands were easier to travel to, easier to populate and to police. The taste preference helped mould what was being produced in that area. However, it has not been the practice of the English to just allow the Scots to just to get on with things. Instead of letting them make their own spirit out of what they have grown themselves in their own land, what was to follow was a series of measures aimed at restricting, controlling, and let's be honest, making money out of the Scots. The effect was interesting. 
The landscape of northern Scotland was not only perfect for whisky making, it was perfect for the development of family units, getting together to form clans. Clans often in dispute with each other, but eventually coming together against a common enemy, the English. And in all honesty, who could blame them? As northern mountainous clans dug their heels in, so the south seemed friendlier, I suppose, to the, to the English. It was the year 1814 that really made distinction clear. It was that year that the law was set that made it illegal to have a still with a capacity of less than 500 gallons, much larger than the small farm-based stills. But this law only applied to the highlands. A division was set. The lowlands had easier regulations and greater financial power. And what did the Highlands have? Well, what the Highlands had was geography. They had a landscape that they knew well and could hide in. They had determination, creativity, and to be blunt, they also had little choice. When times are hard, you have to find a way to survive. They also had one other very important factor. The whiskey they were producing was good. It was what the customer wanted. The average Englishman may not have been fully tuned in to Highland Mort at that point, but many were. And those who wanted whiskey wanted it to be Highland whiskey. They wanted it from those illicit stills. The effect of the 1814 law was to make the Highlanders even more determined. Illicit distilling was spreading. Legal whisky was dropping in its standards. Then, in 1820, the Duke of Gordon managed to convince the government to do something different. Something perhaps against the flow of what they had tried before. In 1823, a law was enacted that legalised smaller stills. Now, these stills only had to be 40 gallons of capacity. And they came with a fee of a £10 licence fee that they had to pay. Well, this meant that the illicit distiller could, in theory, go legal. The more legal whisky being sold, the more the government could make money from it and the less they needed to spend on policing and enforcing laws that were stopping illicit distilling. So it made sense for the government to enact that law. Well, that was the theory. In practice, of course, it would take a very brave person indeed to make such a move, to stand up against the illicit distillers, to risk absolutely everything, including their lives, and take a licence out to become a legal distillery. That took more than just guts. Now, as it was, there were such brave people around, one famously being George Smith, who founded the Glenlivet Distillery. Now, it should also be noted that a royal influence was also to be relevant. 
during a visit to Scotland in August 1822 by Britain's King George IV, it was noticed that he had a taste for whisky, for Highland whisky, in particular whisky from the Glenlivet area. Now what I want to do now is read to you from Memoirs of a Highland Lady, 1797 to 1830. This is Elizabeth Grant. The whole country went mad. Everybody strained every point to get to Edinburgh to receive him. Sir Walter Scott and the town council were overwhelming themselves with the preparations. One incident connected with this time made me very cross. Lord Coiningham, the Chamberlain, was looking everywhere for pure Glenlivet whisky. The King drank nothing else. It was not to be had out of the Highlands. My father sent word to me. I was the cellarer to empty my pet bin, where the whisky long in wood long in uncorked bottles, mild as milk, and the true contraband gout in it. Much as I grudged this treasure, it made our fortunes afterwards, showing on what trifles great events depend. The whisky went up to Holyrood House, and was graciously received, and made much of, and a remainder of this attention at a proper moment by the gentlemanly chamberlain ensured to my father the Indian judgeship. Now this made a big difference. What this meant was that the British king was openly saying that he was in favour of this Highland drink, this Highland whisky. And that was to have an effect on the popularity and the acceptability of whiskey within the country. But more so than that, it was also to say very publicly that that, by royal decree, was where the good quality stuff was to come from. So let's take the Glenlivet story a bit further. In 1875, new trademark legislation came into act, and Glenlivet responded to this with an application. Now that was done out of need, because this distillery had picked up a big reputation for good quality. But many other distillers had also been selling under the name of Glenlivet, and they needed to stop that. It risked the quality of their name, it also took away some of their profit. Now this could now be stopped through this new trademark legislation. It could be stopped, but it wasn't. There was a mistake in their application. Instead of applying for the, a simple application in the name of Glenlivet, the application included a decorative background, a tartan background with a double circle. The whole design received the trademark, rather than simply the name Glenlivet. And the result was that others could still use that name, usually hyphenating it with their own name. And Dan, one of those that did that, was Macallan. So that Macallan was sold as Macallan Glenlivet. 
But of course they weren't the only ones to do that. There was Abelor Glenlivet, Altmore Glenlivet, Balminic Glenlivet, Belvini Glenlivet, Benromac Glenlivet, Colburn Glenlivet, Convolamore Glenlivet, Craganmore Glenlivet, Craigalecki Glenlivet, and so it goes on, with names that we still would recognise today. Glen Farkless, Glen Grant, Glen Murray, Glen Rothis, Longmorn, Spayburn, Tamdu, Milton Duff, all hyphenating with the name Glenlivet. What followed was years of individual legal battles, but it also showed just how respected for quality the area around Glenlivet, the Spey, was. So many realising this that they highlighted any connection they could link with the sides of the Spey or anything that came in or out of it. The Speyside area was born. But let's not forget that the lowlands were still there and as Stein and Coffee brought in the continuous still, the lowlands were to make its presence known. The Highlands whisky had quality and character, but so much of it that many of the English still could not take to it. As the continuous stills enabled grain whisky to be made, and the financial building presence of the lowlands, as well as the legal processes that I've talked about in previous past episodes, along with an uneasy process that was to take place that resulted in the emergence of blended scotch, and the rest of it, as they say, is history. The highlands, including Speyside, and the lowlands were formed. They became distinct areas, but they're not the only regions. There are others as well that make geographical sense, Isla being one of them, but also due to its distinct character, Campbelltown is yet another, a once significant area of distinctive whisky, an area worthy of an episode in its own right, an area affected by transport issues and local resource issues, and of course there's also that catch-all classification within Scotland of islands. The regions of Scotland are not the only regions, even if some sources do list regions as being Highland, Lowland, Isla Islands, Irish, American and rest of the world. What a catchphrase, eh? What a catch-all that is, rest of the world. Irish whisky I find interesting. It tends to be classified in a different way. Despite the political differences that set bushmills in Northern Ireland whilst the others stand in the Republic, Irish whisky stands as a classification in its own right, with the possibility that Irish pot still whisky may firm itself more as a separate individual classification. America's regions or classifications are also different. Yes, Kentucky whiskey is from Kentucky. Tennessee whiskey is from Tennessee and also uses a Lincoln County process of filtration. But bourbon, 
is only historically associated with Bourbon County and can be made anywhere in the USA. Regional classifications are full of problems and as some producers become more diverse and more geographical areas actually start producing whiskey, these problems become more so. Broad regional categories are obvious. Japanese whiskey is Japanese. It is from Japan. That's simple. The same goes for French, Indian, Swedish, American, Canadian and so on. Should we still think this way if the casks are imported from other countries? So much of the flavour of whisky comes from the wood, and the wood comes frequently from other countries. The barley, the barley itself, being imported sometimes from other countries, as is the yeast, and sometimes even the water. Now let's take the old Little Mill distillery a lowland distillery whose water source was in the highlands. So where does that place it? Is it a highland or a lowland? If a distillery is in a country, but it sources its barley from one another country, it sources its yeast from a different country to that, and it's maturing its, its whiskey, its spirit in barrels from Europe when it's not a European country, what nationality is that whiskey? And does that make a big difference anyway? And in the end, the product, no matter from what region it is, is quite likely to be exported yet further to another country. And sometimes that happens for maturation. Not for Scottish whiskey, not for Scotch. Scotch whisky has to be matured within Scotland, but it's not to stop other whiskies, other countries making whisky and moving their whisky to other countries for maturation. So these regional geographical ways of classifying whisky it's full of, of complications and we haven't even begun to consider what happens if for some reason those geographical boundaries change. What if, for example, a distillery is in England, right at the border with Scotland, but some event happens that shifts the border so that that, that distillery then becomes part of Scotland? Does that mean it can then call itself Scotch? So what are the alternatives to regional classification? Now, one simple answer would be classification by ingredient or process. The USA system can lean towards this. It, it goes somewhere towards such a system. The process classification of Tennessee whiskey, the ingredient system of rye whiskey, but these are very broad. It's like the European system of single malt, single grain, blended malt, blended grain and blended whiskey. These terms regulate both process and ingredients, but remains very broad. The difference between one single malt and another can be huge, and the geographical association can be misleading. Isla, for example, is known for peatiness. Yet as Brookladdy moves more to lowering the peat levels in the Brookladdy range as it develops its Port Charlotte range to be more peaty, 
it could beg the question, well, does Brook Laddie get itself to a point where it's no longer an Isla because it doesn't fit into that peatiness for which Isla is, is famous for? And maybe a peaty whiskey should be considered to be an Isla whiskey, even if it's not from Isla such as the Irish Connemara. Maybe that should be classified as an Isla because it meets that sort of... No, I'm talking rubbish. That whole system would be daft. A geographical association has to be by geography, not by the character. Even though, in the past, there could well have been a tendency to try to get away with that which is why you would have some whiskies being described as being in the Highland style, even if they weren't in the Highlands, or whiskies being described as being of a Scotch style, even though they're not in Scotland. This is a phenomenon that has become a lot rarer, especially as geographical determination has become more accepted. One way of classifying whisky that I think would be fun and that has actually been done by some people with cider but only on a small scale and what I think would be even more fun would be the research going behind it would be classification by effect now this would mean that you could have social whiskey contemplation whiskey joke telling whiskey dancing whiskey it's a fun idea but with plenty of problems A further classification would be by taste. At first this seems simple and straightforward, but in reality it isn't. First of all, taste is very subjective. Secondly, there are many tastes to choose from, and whiskey is a complex blend of them all. So which do you identify as the defining flavours, and where do you place well-balanced complex whiskies? Whilst pictorial configurations, such as the whiskey wheel, can go towards this, it doesn't truly give a system that is simple to use as a way of classifying. How would you describe, for example, a simple configuration of the whiskey wheel to the layman? There are so many flavours within whiskey, it would be damn near impossible to try to see that as a way of everyday classification. You could, for example, have smoky whiskies or non-smoky whiskies, but that leaves a whole load of dimensions untouched. You could have fruity whiskies, non-fruity whiskies, and the same thing applies. You need to have so many different variables of flavour operating with it being such a, a complex drink. Classification is important. It helps us choose what it is we're wanting to buy. And public opinion relates to this. There are those who will only choose from within a particular classification, Scotch being a popular one of those. It is an element that the marketing people cater to as well, as do a growing number of associated industries such as whisky tourism, sometimes going over the top with it. There have been many people complain about the way that whiskey bottles can be subject to an overuse of bagpipes and tartan and thankfully 
there's still some of those around because I think it does look really good but not when it's done for the wrong reasons and there's just too many of them. Getting that blend of tartaned bottles and non-tartaned bottles I think is brilliant because let's face it there's so much more that you can draw from from Scotland and Ireland other than just tartans to put on the bottle. Maybe the solution to this comes in two parts. First, maybe not relying on one form of classification at all, but by using a system of cross-referencing, utilising at least two forms of classification, or even more, so that the Venn diagram of profiles pick out with greater accuracy. I set out my criteria and classify to it. Age, flavour, price, character, geographical region. I plot all those profiles out in my mind and where it, it crosses over is where I select. The second approach is education and this to me is the real answer. Giving people information and guidance, talking, asking questions, trying things so that an educated choice can be made. It may not be possible to have a single and easy to use system of classification. There are some distilleries that produce such a variety of styles that they almost need a system in their own right. But with education, the consumer can cross-reference and choose. With education, the consumer can understand, even at a basic level, of what the label means what other factors to take in and maybe that does mean having more information on the bottle maybe maybe just saying highland isn't enough maybe this is where the tasting notes that you often see on labels come into it as well to enable that cross-referencing of two different types of classification and one thing I like about this is, yes, it does enable you to pinpoint the whiskey that you want, but it also gives you that, that confidence to experiment, to try, to try something new without having to go too far into uncharted territory. There is no single way of classifying whiskey that solves all the problems that classification brings. And unfortunately, education at a true level with whiskey, does involve trying it. It does involve drinking it. It's a hard reality to face up to. But, personally, it's a sacrifice I'm prepared to make. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. There's the website www.themaltedmuse.com. And there's also Twitter, Twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.